Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are in the office here to continue our series on the life and thought of Martin Luther, a class that we share here at the at the College of Wisconsin Lutheran College in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're slowly going through um, some of the, the key points of Luther's life. Um, we are, I don't know, like in their 30s, 30, this will be 34th now. episode. And recently we've uh, not been outside of the chronological order, but we did take time after the Peasants' War to take a look at Thomas Munzer. We talked about Katie von Bora. And now we're a little bit out of order here, uh, considering that uh, the Freedom of the Will was published by Erasmus before this. But um, Luther's response to Erasmus's Freedom of the Will, the Bondage of the Will or Bound Choice, is going to come a little bit after in 1525. And so our topic today is kind of the historical background of this dispute between the humanist Erasmus and Martin Luther, and it really is at the heart of the Reformation. In fact, I just had a student come up to me, a freshman yesterday, and say, I have a, have a, a question that she has been debating with her, uh, her classmates about, and I said, well, you've hit the hammer on the head. I mean, it had to do with uh, bound will, and uh, a little bit more came from a, a viewpoint of uh, what's predestination, and I said, well, you hit the hammer on the head. You're in the right, right, right track there that you've been thinking about these things, and it is extremely complicated but extremely important that we get this right and so uh wade uh, we've done a bigger episode on uh on the bondage of the will but this is more of a historic thing right so yeah and so for a little background um mike is using a handheld i hope the sound is the sound okay well that's what i was gonna tell you is it's making a uh crumbling noise when you play with the with the stand so i think Maybe either take it out of the stand and just hold it, or Lean leave it over there. Like this. Why? Why are you using that mic instead of the headset? Well, Mike worked out today, and uh, he's looking fit. <laughs> um, what What did you say I looked like? What was I dressed in? Um, Mike is wearing a, a track suit. Uh, so also I, known as a West Dallas tuxedo. Yep, I look pretty good. Um, now, when we when we are say work out for either of us, we have air quotes around that. Right. Right. Um, but I will confirm, Mike is sweaty. Yeah, so I, I had... Uh, or did you just put water in your hair to impress me? <laughs> to impress you, yeah. So uh, I had some time before Wade was done with class, and I said, uh, it's Friday, and I kind of wanted to get home because the kids didn't have school, to, or two young kids didn't have school today, and a man's going to be home early, and so let's have some family time. I said, I'm going to work out early while I'm waiting for Wade to get done with class, but I didn't think this through, and I didn't want to put a headset on to a sweaty head. And so now I'm back to the old-fashioned mic. So that's why the sound may be a little bit different than Wade's sound. But you're going to talk more than I am in this episode, so it'll be fine. Yeah, and I want to point out, Mike, speaking of healthy choices, what am I? What do I have over here? Uh, you're drinking tea for some reason. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm dipping the tea bag into the tea right now. And uh, I look pretty classic carrying it in, didn't I? Yeah, with your uh, 2020 Yang t-shirt. Hey, we are not talking about <laughs> And your Amish beard—it's quite a scene, man. Yeah. It's quite a scene. It uh, and your and your tea your tea mug is actually kind of like a a medal which you would take camping. So, but it, what does it say? It is from uh, here. We still stand. The fifteen seventeen um, 
conference that they have in San Diego so every October. You are you are repping quite it's a few different mugs. You, you're repping quite a few different things with your whole ensemble. That's what here. I like to do. Yeah, that's right. All right, tell me about the historical background. Let's start with Erasmus just a little bit. He probably is deserving of his own episode. Have we done one on him yet? I don't think we have. No. So and so it's kind of like. You know, Erasmus, if you come from a non-Lutheran circle, you're like, that guy's awesome, huh? He's pretty cool. And if you're Lutheran, like, he's the worst person that ever lived ever, right? And uh, the truth is he's just kind of a complicated guy, and he is more than just the person who poked the bear that is Martin Luther. Yeah, and I think um, we probably can save some for Erasmus for his own session, but I... I do think basic background that's helpful, uh, Desiderius Erasmus is from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Um, I did my PhD um, at, uh, in part at... Was he a long-distance ice skater? No. Okay. Um, but I, I did my uh, PhD and some of my master's work. Soccer fan? I don't... He, he, I'm building up to it, Mike. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. But um, he's from Rotterdam, and so at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and when I would... Um, ride my bike to the college there. I would cross the Erasmus Bridge and go past the Erasmus Medical Center um, and a statue of Erasmus. Um, but the interesting thing is Erasmus could not get out of there soon enough, um, and he really didn't identify much with Rotterdam. It wasn't something that was on his radar regularly um, after he left. He's going to be a humanist. Um, I would say it's fair to say the leading humanist of his day, um, and that humanism meant uh, not like today when we hear secular humanism and we associate that with atheism. Um, but these humanists were, were Christians for the most part. And uh, it was a return to a focus on the humanities, um, especially the humanities as they were um, practiced or understood in the ancient world. Um, so returning to original um, language study for, for ancient texts. Um, replicating ancient, ancient architecture, art that tried to take themes from antiquity. And uh, Erasmus will be very important for the, the literature side of it, um, grammar and rhetoric, as he will uh, bring, uh, he will try to standardize manuscripts for ancient texts. He will uh, have commentaries on ancient texts. And most important for our purposes, the Greek New Testament that almost any of the reformers would have been using um, was put together by Desiderius Erasmus. I don't mean by that that he, uh, you know, wrote the Bible. <laughs> but he looks at the Greek manuscripts that are extant for that time and puts together what he thinks is the best, uh, and then this is published. And so he's very important for the Reformation. Uh, Erasmus himself wants reform. But it's not the, the same type of reform that Luther wants. The humanists on the whole tended to want, with Erasmus, moral reform. Mm -hmm. They wanted a return to what they saw as the simplicity of the New Testament. They wanted a church that lived more consistently um, according to its, <clears throat> its values. Erasmus, interestingly, kind of gets viewed in our day as being progressive for his own day. Um, he talks about things like tolerance and other things, and people will look at that and say, well, that sounds like he was ahead of his times. Uh, in some ways he was, in other ways he wasn't. Um, for all that uh, Luther wrote about the Jews that was not great, that we wouldn't want to uphold, uh, Luther did not see the Jews as a race. He viewed them religiously. And uh, um, Jewish Christians, he had lots of people he had worked with and he respected. 
Erasmus will say something like, we'll baptize a Jew and it's still a Jew. Um, so he's still a man of his times too. Um, in Praise of Folly is one of his famous works that he'll write to, it's kind of an inside joke, him and Thomas More, um, because More sounds like the Greek word for folly or foolishness, where we get moron from. Um, but Erasmus at first thinks this Luther thing could be good. Um, but maybe, Mike, you can just point out a little bit on your uh, old school mic we got there now, uh, how Luther's reform will differ than Erasmus. I kind of set the stage for Erasmus wanting moral reform. How is, how is Luther's goal going to be different? Well, and I think you see this not just in Erasmus, but later uh, the Counter-Reformation um, that... <laughs> A more Roman Catholic within reform that's going to maintain the uh, the power structure of the papacy is going to be about, like you said, a moral reform that may come out in a weird way, like an Inquisition, like a violent way. It can become in a more intellectual way, like some of the humanists that you that you speak of. Luther is going to be. This is a theological issue, right? And uh, that's why I think Wycliffe and, and Huss are. You know, we tend to relate them a little bit to Luther um, because I think they saw, certainly they saw the corruption and would and would look at the corruption of the Roman, everybody looks at, the, it's not like they were uh, ignorant of the corruption of the Roman Catholic power structure. And times haven't changed, there's, there's no. Catholics still today yeah. who will want to see reform of the institution. Right, and, and so, but they understood that it was something different and it wasn't like, oh, this is just something of the heart, like if we... You know, if we change the heart, then everything would be okay. It's a theological misunderstanding about law and gospel. And I think for Luther, you know, it, and part of it maybe is his eschatology here. Like, I'm not waiting three decades to find a figure out that we, you know, we can make the, the priests stop doing the stupid stuff that they're doing. Um, the, the fields are ripe kind of thing. I also think um, he understands... Um, the theology of the cross that uh, it, versus a theology of glory. He doesn't look for the moral reform of the church to be, oh, now we got it. Like, you know, what's the goal? If everybody's perfect, uh, first of all, it's not going to happen, but what have you accomplished? You haven't accomplished the forgiveness of sins. You haven't gotten to faith. And so the key theological issue, of course, is does a person truly have a free will when it comes to things of religious matters? Do they have a free choice in these matters or not? Or are you, like St. Paul described, the sinner who cannot help but do anything but sin, a slave to sin? Um, if you want, addict is a decent enough uh, um, analogy there. I think there's probably holes in all analogies. And then you're also a saint somebody who is equally a prisoner, a slave to righteousness. And so Luther will say, thank you, Erasmus, for bringing this up, this, this question of a free will or a bound will, maybe better free choice versus uh, a bound choice, because everybody else is kind of dancing around the, the subject. So Erasmus is going to assume, um, not assume, but he is going to make the argument that people do have a free will, and that necessarily is going to lead him to more of a, we can figure this out 
uh, morally, we can do it ourselves. The only question becomes, do we do it through kind of the resurrection, a rebirth of humanities and thinking and being, uh, lack of a better term, Renaissance men, or are we going to be more like Isabel of Spain, <laughs> you know, where we're going to, here, we're going to make more rules. Either way, it's law. Either you're going to make more rules and be a kind of a dictator spiritually, or you're going to try to move in a direction in, in a more kind manner. But either way, it assumes a free choice. It assumes that we can get better. It's a theology of glory, and um, it assumes it, it's necessarily going to go down the path of moral reform rather than theological reform. And so we'll get to uh, kind of the, the opening attack. Um, in September of 1524, uh, Erasmus' work, um, De Libero Arbitrio Diatribe Siwe Colatio, um, called on free will or the diatribe, usually in English, um, <coughs> Luther has fun with that diatribe uh, title. But that will appear, and it's the first time that um, Erasmus is publicly attacking Luther. Now, he has, in private correspondence, expressed concern before, but this will be the first public attack. And to keep in mind, just to put it in perspective, 1524 is seven years after the appearance of the 95 Theses. So this is not Erasmus attacking Luther out of the gates. And in fact, it's not Erasmus wanting to attack Luther but by this time, he was being pressured to be able to say, I'm either with the church or I'm against the church. And that seven years is a lifetime. Those are packed seven years as we have uh, gone through in our, uh, in our Winging It series here. I mean, that seven years, Luther has matured uh, quite a bit. Um, maybe he's still speaking the same theological points, but a lot has happened. Yeah, and so he's going to write, and it seems he's actually trying to pick something that's not central to Luther's teaching. Um, but it does make sense that Erasmus picks what he does since he wanted moral reform in the church. Um, usually proponents of moral reform are going to be big fans of the free will. Um, because if you're going to it, think of the self-help movement. If you're going to get better, you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and pull it off. He's going to write against Luther, and Luther waits something like 11 months to reply. Um, in fact, it appears he didn't even plan to reply, but his friends and, and even his wife are going to basically pressure him and say, look, this is, this is not like Joe from, you know, Westphalia wrote against you. This is the leading humanist of the day, and Luther is going to reply. And I think maybe first if we can briefly summarize Erasmus' arguments. Yeah, maybe just a couple dates just so we can frame sure. this. Lots going on in that year, too. So September 1524, Erasmus writes his diatribe. This is 1524-1525 is the Peasants' War. Uh, Luther finally gets married to uh, Katie in June of 1525, and December of that year, 1525, is when he finally publishes. So he's got a lot going on, too. Right. Yeah. Um, he had a busy planner. <laughs> and, uh, and so Erasmus largely is going to center his argument. What he really wants to defend is good works that we contribute something to um, and good works that contribute something to our salvation. And as Erasmus sees it, if our good works are going to be meritorious before God, and here we're talking about um, merit when it comes to soteriology, how we're saved. So if our good works are going to some way contribute to our salvation, even if just a tiny bit, 
then we must be able to have a free will to choose them. Otherwise, what if there's no choosing, what is there for God to reward? Or if there's no choosing on the flip side, how can God justly punish? Um, you know, to Erasmus, it would be like God commanding me to dunk a basketball, and then he sends me to hell because I can't dunk a basketball. Well, Mike, you can take a look at me. No matter how hard I try, it's probably not happening. On a 10-foot rim, absolutely not. Right. Nine-foot rim? Not even on a nine. Yeah, maybe... Seven. Seven? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so Erasmus's key arguments are going to be that God would not command the impossible. And it's very logical. Right. It's very logical. Oh, Erasmus wins on logic. Um, well, on natural human logic. Uh, so God wouldn't command the impossible, he argues. Um, if we don't have a say in what good works we do, if we can't choose, then God can't reward them. Um, that Luther uh, exaggerates original sin to the point of undermining um, the goodness of which the human race is capable, um, and that salvation is by grace but also by works. And perhaps two analogies um, that Erasmus uses or that carry out Erasmus' line of thought would be, um, the first would be like for Erasmus, it's like the father who lifts up his little child to pick the apple off the tree. Um, the daughter or son picks the apple off the tree, but they couldn't do it if the father wasn't providing the most of the height. Or the sailor who comes through the storm um, and strained at the oars in the storm, but largely the ship comes through the storm by God's grace. Um, the sailor's going to say, God saves me, but Erasmus says it's not as if the sailor did nothing. Right? He strained at the oars, he threw the anchor over, or he threw... Um, some of the uh, um, oh, what do you call, cargo over. It, this is good vocational talk, right? Which and we're going to separate above and below later, right. right? And so it it seems like this. It's you got to talk about this kind of stuff in this way in the right realm. And so for Erasmus, it's not that the human being is completely neutral. He recognizes that we're tainted by sin, but there still is Erasmus thought. Some of the old Greek philosophers that we're, we're not completely corrupted to the point that we're in, we can't do good. So there is, there's nudging that needs to happen, and if we're nudged by grace, we can then do these good works that merit salvation. Luther is going to write what I know um, Jim Nestigan and others have called a pastoral letter to um, Erasmus. This does not mean pastoral in the sense of it's not uh, blunt, mm -hmm. right? He, uh, it's not filled with niceties, but what Luther sees in Erasmus is basically um, what has always been the problem with human religion, someone who has trapped themselves in a theology that can never produce certainty, and someone who is diminishing the work of Christ in order to include some place for their own work in salvation. And, and that never ends up in a, a good place in the end run for people, um, at some point, it's exposed, and then the person then needs the gospel, and Luther wants Erasmus to understand what the gospel is and his own need for it. <clears throat> so Luther's going to argue um, that we do not have a free will. He says, I, don't, I wish we didn't even have to use that term because free will is such a packed term. But he's going to say we don't have a free will, and some of you are listening to this and you're thinking, well, how can he say we don't have a free will? He's going to say we don't have a free will in things above us. We have a free will in things below so the illustration I always use in class with students is I have a free will to choose Big Macs or Whoppers, 
or Big Macs and Whoppers. But I, I don't have a free will um, to be saved, to save myself. When it comes to my salvation, Paul says, but as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people cannot choose life. And so this is not that I can't choose a Ford or a Chevy or a Dodge. <coughs> this is that I cannot choose to be made alive in Christ. That has to be done to me. And for Luther, that's done through preaching and through the word. Um, Erasmus in On the Free Will uses scripture um, like a concordance. He's going to throw a bunch of proof texts. Luther's going to joke that he tried to gather every text in the scripture that says choose. You know, choose ye this day as every good MLC grad's home has a, a plaque <laughs> up. Um, but Luther's going to point out that Erasmus doesn't understand what those choosing texts are even doing. Um, we can do the law, but we can't fulfill it. We can never completely fulfill it. Uh, so Luther's going to use a different illustration. He's going to say we're like a, a beast of burden that's ridden either by the God or the devil, and they contend for us. So we're born um, with concupiscence, with original sin, under the devil. Um, Christ must break through and take the reins. Well, how does he do that? He does that through the word and through the sacraments, the same way that he created the world with his word. Um, how, do I work, how do I do good works? Well, it's God who works through me. And so as you pointed out, Mike, vocationally Erasmus illustrations could maybe be used. The problem is that um, Erasmus is using them in the realm of salvation. And maybe there, um, because Luther will be accused of, um, you know, it's interesting, one of Luther's earliest and most influential works is his Sermon on Good Works, right? Um, but because he can be accused of downplaying good works, maybe you can explain a little bit here what you meant by the vocational aspect. Yeah, maybe, maybe one thing before I forget about it. Um, <clears throat> I'll often use the illustration to people who are new to Christianity, uh, some freshmen here on, on campus, and I hammer home the two kinds of righteousness, right? And I, and I, I don't know if I'm right in this or not, but I'm like, just think of two systems. The system over here, the righteousness by law, is you do something and you're rewarded or you're punished, right? And this works generally well for regular day life. But this is terrible when it comes to love. And uh, then the system of righteousness by faith is a righteousness outside of us. Christ comes here, does it, because it gives it to us and it's credited to our account. And I go through that whole system, uh, that, that whole analogy over and over and over again. And one of the things I say is, if we were in a system of righteousness by law, it'd be like I take my baby home from the, um, from the hospital and I put it on the doorstep and I say, hopefully one day you'll be able to follow the rules and then I'll love you and you'll be a part of the household and say how awful that would be. And that's striking to them. But we have to understand that's exactly what God does, right? He does demand us of those things that we cannot do. And then he provides us those things by either giving us faith when he says, stop doubting and believe to Thomas, knowing full well Thomas couldn't do it on his own, then he provides the faith. It's no different than when he says, be perfect like your heavenly father. Well, what the heck, you know? He does, he does command Wade to slam dunk a basketball on 10-foot. But then he provides that for you, and so I have no doubt that in heaven you will be, you will be, I was going to say Kobe Bryant, who just passed away, but you will be like, you know, Bill Lambeer. Bill Lambeer. Yeah, that's who you would go after, yeah. So 
when we talk about when we talk about this this kind of stuff of law and this is how generally it works you know we're, we're happy with a world generally that's at least tries to feign fairness right if you drink too much you're going to um, have a hangover if you don't study you're going to get an f if you do study there's a good chance you're going to get a good grade you follow the rules generally speaking you'll be blessed you know following the fourth commandment and god will god will bless you and so we can rightfully think of in vocational terms um god is getting the ship through the storm and he uses he uses those people to do it. So it's not like the person is useless. It's not like he is just um, a body without a soul and God sends a spirit to do something, but it's really the Holy right. Spirit. No, it is. It's just that ship being. is not the ship to heaven. Right. That ship is a ship that's helping facilitate trade here on earth. And I think that the, that above <coughs> and below thing, that's part of the story here. Are you talking about your your life of vocation. I don't even want to talk about my life of sanctification. I like my life of vocation, right? Because that's the setting for my sanctification. And that helps me understand a lot of things because when I think about sanctification, uh, I shouldn't, but sometimes I start thinking about how I'm doing and my growth and all this, and all of a sudden I'm navel-gazing instead of being turned out to see my neighbor, right? And And this is the, why we have this podcast. This is about freedom. I'm so free from this that I can lo- lose myself in the love of neighbor. And that's finally when a good work actually is to the glory of God because it's not done to earn God's favor or to somehow earn God a good reputation around the world, but rather that when he sees us so unconcerned about, so secure in his love that we are free from worrying about it that we can lose ourselves in the craft of our jobs and the love of our neighbor. That, that's something that I wonder Erasmus maybe never gets to. I mean, he's, 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 he's two or three steps away from that kind well, of as joy. You, as you like to say, in other regards, his sanctification is always selfish. Yeah. In the end, sanctification is for me and Erasmus' view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, along those lines, a, a graph I usually draw on the board, and I, uh, I'm terrible at math, so it's not a good graph. But um, we tend to picture the Christian life, um, and if you imagine when you come to faith, and then if the, the line is going up or down based on your need for Jesus, Erasmus and others would tend to view it as, okay, you come to faith, and you completely need Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So it's at the top on the far left, whatever the X or mm-hmm. Y or whatever, I don't mm-hmm. remember. And then as you grow in faith, it kind of decreases, and you're able to do more and more. For Luther... That is a straight line across the top. You need Jesus just as much um, throughout your Christian life. This is because it's it's based entirely on grace and faith, and this is why law and gospel is the paradigm for understanding the Christian life and for living it. You're constantly having your need exposed. In fact, if there were a way to even draw it, you'd be growing into your need or dependence upon Christ as you grow on faith, um, not becoming less dependent, but more. I mean, that's the essence of creatureliness in, in respect to creature. And we, we, the analogy that maybe helps is marriage in, in a very limited way that, that's a good um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I am much more financially stable and independent and got my act together now than that, that and, and, and mature enough that, than I was when I w- my first year of marriage. 
but at the same time, I probably have grown into loving my wife and needing her more. And I can't quite explain that. It's it's a bad analogy, but... I feel I mean, you, though. It could kind of help a little yeah. bit, yeah. Uh, another thing that's helpful about the bondage of the will is there's a lot of people, usually they do this when they don't like something in Luther. Um, and they'll say, well, this was early Luther or this was late Luther. And there's a lot of times where people will take some of the early Luther and say, well, he grew out of those themes or emphases. Uh, there's some who now will do that with two kinds of righteousness, although you read the Galatians commentary, which is 1535, and, I mean, that's what he leads with. It's right there. It's just central. Um, but a lot of times when people are trying to get on their hobby horse and, and push whatever they're trying to push, they'll, they'll come up with these arguments. Um, bondage of the will is important because it shows how a Luther now who is well into, I mean, if we're thinking early 1510s, he starts this, who's well into his uh, theological journey, if we want to use that jargon, um, who is really coming to see in a mature and important way what issues are really central to his theology, which I would say is the Bible's theology. And so we see the doctrine of election, um, the doctrine of original sin, and the doctrine of free will are just central here, as well as the efficacy of the word um, and justification by grace through faith, a forensic justification. Later in life, this, and I believe if I'm remembering the Genesis commentaries, are the two works Luther says that he's still happy to hang his hat on. He'd have the, the others gladly thrown out. Um, and this becomes the contact point after Luther dies where there's debates within Lutheranism. So this is not a an incidental aspect of Luther's teaching, but it is um, part of the heart and core of it. Um, it's Romans and Galatians unpacked. And so um, I think on the bondage of the will is so important too because while it's very hard to understand and it's best read backwards as um, Paulson and Nestigan and others have said, it gets to um, the central, um, to the heart of the matter as far as Luther's um, anthropology and Luther's soteriology, um, what man is and how God saves um, the human race or saves men and women. Um, and, and so I think it merits uh, study for that. I think for preachers, um, anyone who wants to be a good gospel preacher really should should sit down and spend some time in bondage of the will because here Luther is very clear um, on what the word does and how the word relates to the sinner um, and how salvation is given. Sadly, in much of American Christianity, Erasmus is one, mm-hmm. right? Seven principles to this or the, the law sandwich um, uh, sermon that, that gives with one hand and takes away with another. Um, the uh, kind of church's self-help. Um, so I, I think it's it's one of the few works in the history of Christianity that states as clearly as possible what are fundamental teachings of Christianity on which people have again and again in every age erred. Right. And I think... You know, going back to the two kinds of righteousness, what I will tell the freshmen quite a bit, hammer home the two kinds of righteousness just because it's such a such a simple way to kind of explain the whole thing that then they 
and I will try to imprison ourselves to this first kind of system. And I'll say to them, and you don't know you're doing it half the time. Yep. And you don't know how to deal with freedom very well. And like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, they want to go back. And it can be as simple as, um, you know, I, I'm not valued enough. Let's, let's say, be stereotypical here. I'm not pretty enough, valuable enough as a, as, as a woman. And so I may try to do things. I, I want to do things to earn the love of some person that I want to marry me, something like that. It can be as simple as you look at college as I get good grades, I get a job, I make money. Instead of seeing yourself as a free person who has been afforded a beautiful gift called a liberal education, you know, um, how many times do we put ourselves back into that, into that prison? And so, uh, there is, and I think this is why we're taking the time to do this, uh, podcast, why I think 1517 does what they do, uh, why so many people do what they do is that they see something smells in this American religious scene. Um, and when you get this bound choice or, or the bondage of the will, then things start to click and they start to fall into place. And I think that's what you're after. Well, this is such a kind of a, I don't want to use the word fundamental doctrine, but I think it is, right? I mean, for your spiritual journey, uh, you have to <laughs> realize how pathetic you are. And theologically, if we want to talk about a theological journey, uh, this is where young pastors coming out of seminary, speaking for myself, get it intellectually, but did not get it pastorally right yeah. away. And the quicker you can get this, and this is where you are. And you're not going to get it just by reading the book no, either. It's, it, you are a theologian of the cross, not just studying, not just a student of the theology of the cross. Um, but once you get it, boy, doesn't that change your pastoral care and your counseling and your preaching and your teaching? I mean, I don't think it was a moment for me. I think it was a process um, when it became less and less about saying, yeah, we all know we have a bound will, to preaching, assuming a bound will. Uh, and uh, boy, I, not just in my um, preaching and teaching, but in my own life, uh, when I look at politics, you know, I, I look... What does that person assume? Do they assume that a person should be able and can be able to fix the problem, whether it be through a government program or your own personal responsibility? Um, I look at my children. I look at my students a heck of a lot different. And I wonder if we look at our students, not to criticize any other educators, um, but look at our students a little bit different because we know, <laughs> because we know. And it, it makes you more sympathetic. Oh, absolutely. You might think having this low anthropology makes you like look down on people because human beings are so bad. It, it's actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, it's to look at people through the eyes of Christ and to see objects of mercy, right, um, that Christ has, has, has given his life You're for. naturally more compassionate. Right. And it first had to hit me home. Like, I'm an addict <clears throat> to this sin, Right. I'm not, I'm not on my way to somewhere better. I'm not on my way anywhere. I'm not on my way to anywhere except the love of my neighbor and eventually heaven. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think that hits a fair amount on it. And this is a theme that's come up in previous episodes. I know we talked to it, um, about it in a previous episode or winging it session where we talked about an uncompromising gospel, my, my first book with 1517. Um, but if you found it helpful, dig in on The Bondage of the Will. I would encourage you to read it backwards, as I've said, 
um, because of the way Luther argues in it, um, it's common to summarize your opponent's argument and then poke holes in it and then give your own. So if you read it backwards, you'll get his argument first, and that'll help you um, navigate the, the rest. Um, but otherwise, Mike, I'll let you wrap it up on your uh, your handheld mic there in your West Ellis tuxedo. Yeah. Um, I'm free to wear this uh, very classy. You and you're wearing it well. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm free to do that because, uh, and, and this is actually real. I will I'm not point out, though, by the way, that um, Mike has a picture he hung up on the wall in here of uh, one of the trailer park boys. And I, I don't think we're endorsing the trailer park boys as a show, but I'm assuming you hung that up, Mike, and to make fun of me. For, for dressing down. No, that's clearly your handwriting, and I've never watched well, what does it any say? episode of the trailer what park. What if someone is... wrote on it? What does it say? On his way to work out. <laughs> this is Mike on his way to work yeah, out. Yeah, but you have to admit there's some uh, similarity between you and Ricky there. If I had a gold chain, uh, that would complete the picture. Um, but, you know, you and I, uh, you know, we're kind of slobs a little bit, you know, and sometimes we're embarrassing and sometimes we say stupid things. Mike, you know what I'm typing in my phone? <laughs> a reminder, get Mike fake cold chains. <laughs> um, and we do have a, a sense of humor about ourselves, don't we? And, you know, it is grounded in the reality that I have value as a redeemed child of God. And I am not putting myself back into this righteousness by law in a way where I got to seem like I'm popular, uh, uh, try to win the uh, popularity vote of whatever, my students, my colleagues, or whatever. And once you're free from that, you actually become more relatable, I think, and you become more down-to-earth and you become more compassionate. And those are the natural fruits, not just of the gospel, but of gospel freedom. It's a natural fruit of freedom. Uh, to be a little bit more compassionate, relaxed, a more gospel-centered kind of life. And that's, I think, what, what our teachers perhaps were talking about when they meant be evangelical, uh-huh. right? Uh, we kind of make fun of that, like, you can be a nice guy and preach the law, but he's evangelical. And we, and we rightly point out, well, to be evangelical, you really need to be preaching the gospel. But there's some truth to that. When you are taken by the gospel, you know that everything is done for you in Christ, and there's nothing left to do but let the bird fly.